texted me and said, they're sick. Bastion woke up with a sore throat, and his siblings had been sick all week, so they're staying home because they didn't want to share it with anyone. And I say that as a well-crafted excuse. We are in 1 Corinthians today. Uh, uh, And Mary Green posted on our live stream. She's watching live streams. She said she's feeling fine. She's just slow this morning. So there you go. Don't have to pray for sickness. Pray for strength for her because I know she is going through hard times physically. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as this says. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Do you remember when you finished school? If you did. Remember what it was like, the feeling you felt? Whatever stage it was, whether it was high school, whether it was something else, Maybe you've never graduated, but that's okay. You can put yourself into this of what it was like when you finished. Do you remember the last day of your high school, if you graduated high school? The feelings you had. I remember that day very, very well. Of course, it wasn't that long ago, but a lot has changed. I now have more gray hair. I have a beard. If I dyed my hair brown and I shaved my beard, I would look exactly like that again. I am Mr. Babyface. That is why I have my beard. So it give me some sort of dignity. That day, the world was at my fingertips. I had finally conquered education. I knew all there was to know. I could go and make my way in this world without any problem. Yes, I was going to go on to college, but the professors there weren't going to teach me anything earth-shattering that I didn't already know. I had the basic of all knowledge. They were just going to build on it. It'd be okay. It was just a stepping stone to where I needed to go, but I had the basic knowledge of everything I needed. I had arrived that day. It's amazing the perspective of someone who's 18 Versus the perspective of someone whose brain has matured a little bit. Something happens when someone turns the age of 25. They become cool. The brain matures. And we start realizing how much we don't know. We start realizing we haven't arrived. Well, you might still be a little more silly than you think you are. And if you don't realize soon enough, you realize how much of a mess you have made of your life if you don't realize it soon enough. Because if you don't realize it soon enough, you might look back on your 25-year-old self and say, why in the world was my hair like that? (laughs) I was going down a walk down memory lane this week. The Corinthians thought that they had arrived because they were saved. They had all the knowledge they needed because they had the Holy Spirit within them who would teach them everything they needed, so they couldn't do anything wrong. They couldn't believe anything wrong. They were good. They were fine in their minds. Unfortunately, the lives that they were living, their daily testimony 
showed the exact opposite. Continually throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is trying to convince the Corinthians of the truth that we're studying in this passage today. That our daily testimony is supposed to be in line with our salvation. That that fact, that daily testimony, that daily living doesn't come naturally, nor does it come immediately. But let's read the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13, Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. They had all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual drink and drank the same, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occur as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. Do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for giving us your word holding up a mirror for us to see our lives, holding up a window for us to see you compare and to change. Lord, we are those coming here who confess to be your people, be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, called out of darkness into your glorious light. We are those who have the hope of eternity and a relationship with you. But so often, Father, Our lives don't show it. So often our priorities are wrong. Our desires are wrong. The things we do, the things we say, the things we think are wrong. And in our pride, we refuse to repent and turn back to you. This is who we are. Even though you have gloriously saved us. Lord, I ask that you would show us where our lives are are not in line with who we say we are. And you give us the guts to to change it and to own it. Lord, as I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Paul says that our daily testimony should be in line with our salvation. The Corinthians thought that they were good because they were saved. As I said, they'd turned to Jesus in faith. They'd gone through the steps you're supposed to. They'd, they'd turned from their sins, trust in Christ. They're not trusting in their good works anymore, in their church attendance, their baptism, all these sorts of things. They're trusting in Christ alone. They've followed the formula. So they say, what's the big deal? Paul, I have arrived at holiness. So why are you smacking me around? And Paul says, no, Corinthians, you are far from holiness. As we've studied 
this book. We've already talked about the Corinthians' pride. We've talked about their sexual immorality. We've talked about their lack of love for each other. We've talked about their disunity. We've talked about all these sorts of things, and we could keep going on this laundry list of things that Scripture and history tells us about the Corinthian church and how they were despicable people just like us. Yes, they were saved, but their lives didn't show it. Paul tells the Corinthians that salvation is not sanctification. If that's the case, what is salvation? Salvation is a way to reconcile us with God. God created humanity at the beginning of time to have a relationship with him. However, we chose to go our own way. We chose to live for ourselves and not our creator. We chose to become his enemies through our life. We know the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God says, you can eat from any fruit of the tree that you want to except for this one. And Adam and Eve decided, you know what? I'm hungry. I think I'm going to eat from that one. There's more to the story. We know it. But in that moment, humanity's ability to have a relationship with their creator on their own was destroyed. Picture a beautiful dress with a rip in it. This dress cannot be worn until it's repaired. You could say, Peter, look at all the modern fashions these days. We can wear ripped dresses all we want to. That's a different discussion for another day. You shouldn't wear a ripped dress until it is repaired. Reconciliation is when we line up the two sides of that ripped dress to where they match and then we sew them together. That is reconciliation. We could talk about reconciliation in bank accounts, where you look at your bank statement and you look at your house finances and you compare them and you see, uh uh-oh, something's completely wrong here. And you go through your bank statement, you go through your house finances, you add a little here, take a little there, put it all together until finally they match. Reconciliation, two differing things coming together to match. I'm not talking about lying on finances case that popped in anyone's mind. I'm not talking about lying on finances. Okay. Reconciliation with friends is when you line up two people, both people, who have differences of opinion. Maybe one person is hurt by the other. Something happened. You bring them together and you walk through them so they understand each other's side. And they agree about what happened. And they agree about what needs to happen moving forward. And their friendship is restored reconciliation. Oftentimes, when you talk about two friends, a mediator needs to come in. If you talk about married couples, sometimes hardship happens in a marriage so much that you're on two different planes, and you need to bring a mediator. You need to go to a counselor, and the counselor will work through until finally you're on the same plane. You, You understand what's going on. You agree what needs to go, and it's reconciliation. Reconciliation with God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19. Paul says, All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago that we might be reconciled with God, that we might have a restored relationship with God. 
What we did to God every single day of our life is too great for us to handle on our own. We cannot walk up to God and say, God, you know what? My bad. I'm sorry. What I did over there was wrong. Let's be friends again. It doesn't work that way because the amount of hurt that we have brought against the holy God is too great for us to carry on our own. The restitution that we have to pay to make things right is too great for us to have on our own, to meet on our own. So Jesus came and he died, paying that debt, making that restitution, and through his mediation, we are brought onto the same plane as God. The two sides match and become one. And therefore, through him, we can approach God again, not in fear, but as a friend. Salvation reconciles us with God. That's what salvation is. Sanctification sets us apart. Sanctification is a big word. It literally means to set apart as holy. That is what it means. Set apart as holy. When we turn to Jesus in faith, God says, welcome to my team. I'm now going to put you over here on my team. I'm setting you apart from the other team. I'm giving you my jersey, and you're going to play for me now. You are set apart. Neely Oakdale is going to win on tomorrow. Isn't that right? Yes. Neely Oakdale is going to wear a different jersey than whichever the other team that's playing us, who's going to lose, is wearing. They're too different. They are set apart from each other in the same way we are set apart from everyone else. Paul calls it being slaves of God in Romans 6, 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Before Christ, we lived for ourselves. After him, we're living for God. We're living for his purposes, his desires. He has stamped us with the Holy Spirit who is working on us to to do what is pleasing to God. The author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Holy Spirit is working in us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. The Apostle Peter says it much more bluntly in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 to 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Salvation is speaking to the state of our souls. We are reconciled with God. We have turned from our sin, trusted in Christ alone. We are saved. We are reconciled. We are justified. We are declared righteous. We are declared holy. We're guaranteed in eternity with God. All these things because of salvation, changing the state of our souls. Sanctification speaks to the state of our life. In salvation, God declares us holy. In sanctification, we therefore live holy. One cannot be sanctified unless they are saved. If we have never turned to Jesus in faith, but we are still trusting in our good works and all these things that we can do, we cannot be sanctified. We cannot be holy, which is why no one can save themselves by good works. We can't be holy until Christ comes and cleans us and gives us the Holy Spirit. On the flip side, There are plenty of people who are saved, 
but who are not pursuing sanctification. They say, oh, I'm good. I've gotten my fire insurance. I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I can live however I want to live. And Paul and Peter and James and Jesus says, no, that cannot be. Which brings us to this point. Salvation, sanctification, neither one of them removes God's discipline. Salvation took care of our eternal punishment. Through Christ, we don't have to fear hell. We will live forever because we've, in eternity, in glory, because we've turned to him in faith. Sanctification, as we live holy lives, takes care of our temporal punishment, which is a big word to say what the discipline God does here and now. Scripture is clear that God disciplines those he loves. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 6. The author of Hebrews writes, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do make, not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. We as humans do not stop doing bad things until we realize the consequences of our actions, until we realize the seriousness of what we've done. I remember some situations when I was taught about the seriousness of my action. There was one day when, you know, normally I was an angel when I was a kid. (laughs) Don't say anything, Beth. There was one day, totally out of character, I did something against the rules of my house. And what normally happened when I, when I did something totally out of character and disobeyed my parents, uh, my dad would send me to my room for me to think about what I did, uh, and he would be in the other end of the house and cool down from being angry at what I did because my parents had a vow that they would never discipline us out of anger. So he cooled down, I went to my room, and I knew what I did. I, I, I have no idea what I did that day, but I knew what I did was very bad. And I knew I deserved the punishment I was going to get, but I sure as did not want to get this punishment. So any kid who is in here, do not do what I just, what I'm about to tell you I did. I said, okay, my dad's going to come here and punish me, therefore I'm going to make sure he doesn't. So I go to the door and I lock it. (laughs) Everyone knows what's coming. (laughs) And I hide under my bed. And my dad comes to the door and he's going to open it. He can't. And all this time that he spent to cool down is declared null and void. (laughs) He heats up quickly. uh, And I know... This is not good, but there is still a door between me and my dad, so I'm okay. Then the door opens, and I learned a very valuable lesson, that adults know how to open locked doors. And he convinced me in that moment that I should never lock the door again. Uh, And he made sure, after he convinced me of that fact, he reversed the door handles, so in case I forgot the punishment that just been given to me, I would never do it again, because now I can't lock him out. 
which I find fascinating because, like I said, I have no idea what I actually did to start this process going, but to this day, I know that if my dad is coming to discipline me, I better not lock the door. <laughs> Paul tells the Corinthians about the Israelites. The Israelites had possessed everything that the Corinthians had, so to speak. The Israelites had experienced God's miraculous salvation. They'd been led out of Egypt, out of slavery. They're going to the promised land. They had experienced God's uh, baptism as they went through the waters of the Red Sea. They had participated in a form of communion as they ate the bread that God had given them and they drank from the water that God had given them. They were following the direction and provision of Jesus Christ. They had done all these sorts of things, but they refused to align their lives with the holiness of God. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Of all that generation that left Egypt, and there's a little over a million of them, only two got to the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. The rest were killed because of their disobedience as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. What Paul's writing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, it's not speaking of a loss of salvation. These people, are, they're still God's chosen people, but speaking of discipline. God is protecting his holiness, and when someone refuses to reflect his holiness, God will discipline them, Paul says. It, it's not, Paul's saying that God is, God is not this sniper sitting up in his heavenly crow's nest, looking down, waiting for someone to, to do something bad, and pow, he knocks them out. It's not what God is saying. God, God is saying that Paul is saying that God might reverse the door handles on our door so that we won't do it again. God, Paul is saying that pain might come into our life because of what we have done to remind us of the seriousness of our action. It's like me telling my kid, hey kid, the stove's hot. Don't touch it. And then the kid willfully disobeys me and touches the stove and he gets burned. God brings discipline naturally, supernaturally in our lives to remind us of the seriousness of our action, that it is bad, it is wrong, and it will bring pain to us if we willfully act against the holiness of God. God desires our holiness. And those who have turned to Jesus in faith, who have declared, you are my Savior and I trust you alone, we are called to pursue his holiness or we will face God's discipline. Salvation, Paul says, is not sanctification. Sanctification is not immediate. Let's think about these Israelites. Paul says that these Israelites, their lives were examples to the Corinthians and to us. And Paul writes about them in chapter 10, verses 6 to 12. He said, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they, the Israelites, did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and then one day 23,000 of them died. 
we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The Israelites left Egypt under the powerful, glorious, miraculous hand of God. When they were in Egypt and the ten plagues came, they experienced God's miracles in a way that we never have. When they crossed the Red Sea, they experienced God's miracles in a way that we never have. When they got manna from heaven and quail and water flowing from a solid rock, they experienced God's miracles in a way that we never have experienced them. Then God leads them to Mount Sinai, and God speaks to them with his voice, and they all hear the voice of God in a way that we never have, thunder and lightning coming with it. And then God gives them the law, and he says, hey, you've seen my holiness, you've seen my power, you've seen my miracles, now reflect it. Reflect my holiness so that the nations around will see me through you, O Israelites, because you are to be missionaries of me to the nations. And of, everyone, and of anyone, you'd think that the Israelites would immediately snap to attention and say, yes. We're going to follow you, God, because we've seen your power. We've seen your awesomeness. We see what you do to those who don't follow you. Therefore, we will follow you, if just out of fear, if not out of respect. But just like Adam and Eve, who had experienced an actual personal relationship with God as God walked with them in the cool of the evening, every evening, Adam and Eve looked at God and said, yeah, we're going to go our own way to God's face. The Israelites looked to God's face and said, yeah, we're going to go our own way. The Israelites did their own thing. And while Moses was getting the law, the Israelites were creating idols and celebrating through orgies. Paul described the Israelites as repeated idolaters, repeatedly sexual immoral, repeatedly grumblers, repeatedly testers of God. And because of their actions, they suffered God's discipline. Thousands died in the wilderness every time the Israelites grossly disobeyed God. Thousands, every time. And God is almost like saying, when are you going to wake up, Israelites? When are you going to realize that you're to reflect my holiness, not all the lives of the nations around you? When will you wake up? But over and over and over again, the Israelites did not learn. And we could sit back and say, oh, Israelites, why didn't you learn? We could do so much better than you Israelites. But while the Israelites experienced the miracles of God in a way that we never have, we have experienced the miracle of God in a way that they never did. They saw God save them physically. We have seen him save us spiritually. We have seen him over and over and over look down into someone's life who is spiritually dead and bring them to life, newness of life, over and over and over and over and over again. And if we've experienced that in our life and in the lives of those around us, if we have experienced God's miraculous hand, obviously, we, should, we wouldn't quickly turn away from him. Obviously, we would change right away, wouldn't we? But Paul says, 
1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I need a volunteer. Ah, there's my volunteer. Please, come on up. All right, you seem to be a very healthy boy. All your limbs work. Yeah, your arms work, your legs work. You can walk pretty well. Okay, how easy would it be to walk all the way around the sanctuary? Easy? All right, good. I was going to bring a blindfold, but I forgot to. Um, If I took your glasses off and blinded folded you so you could not see, how easy would it be to walk all the way around the sanctuary? Would it be easy? <laughs> oh, I wish I'd brought my blindfold. Oh, I got a t- Hey, there we go. Thank you. Yeah, this will work. Take your glasses off. Can you see anything? No. No? You sure? No. You telling me the truth? Yes. You sure? Okay. Can you breathe? Okay, good. Now, I want you to start walking around first. Sorry. Okay. Now start walking. Oh, did you cheat? It fell off? No. Now, walk around the sanctuary. <laughs> After you hit three things, you're out. <laughs> Keep walking. You sure you're going the right way? I don't know. You don't know? Okay, you're out. <laughs> Give him a hand. <laughs> Blindfolds. Whenever we think, we wake up in the morning and we think, oh, today's going to be a great day. I'm good. I'm saved. I got everything together. I don't need to change anything. My life is fine. We've put a blindfold on our, our eyes. And we're like Mason, trying to walk around in life. And all we're doing is just bumping into things. Things that are stationary, things that are moving around and trying to get us. We so easily follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve, the Israelites, the early church, our own parents. Basically, anyone is human when we put this blindfold and say, I'm fine, I don't need to change, I got everything together. Sanctification is not immediate. It is a process of continually coming to God and humbling ourselves and saying in the words of David in Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We realize that through Jesus Christ, we have a relationship with the creator of the universe. And so we pursue that relationship and we say, please, today, help me be holy. We constantly confess the words of the hymn, 
Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Through the relationship with Jesus Christ, we are renewed to be like him. We take off the blindfold and say, show me my flaws. Show me where I need to change so that today I can live for you. Sanctification is a journey. We cannot say that we've arrived at sanctification because we won't until one day we stand in glory and God makes us new and we then are glorified and perfected. Until eternity comes, we're either walking towards Jesus in the cross or we're walking away from Jesus in the cross. It's the only two choices. There's no middle ground. We can't just stay still and say, I'm good. Because when we're standing still, we're on one of those moving sidewalks on the airport that's actually going in the wrong direction. So which way are we going? In our lives, are we moving towards Jesus in the cross? Or are we moving away? Salvation is not sanctification. Sanctification is not immediate. After a long passage warning the Corinthians about their lives and the dangerous direction that they are going in their lives, Paul brings some words of comfort to them. And one of the most famous verses in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Paul reminds the Corinthians about God's faithfulness. His faithfulness is enduring. We are so easily fickle. We are so easily swayed in our lives by all this stuff around us saying, oh, do this, oh, do that, oh, value this, oh, value that, buy this, experience this, all these things in this world flashing at us, trying to, to take our eyes off of Jesus Christ. I think about Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan in the mid-1600s, a long time ago. He wrote it by the guy by the name of Christian and Faithful, who are on their way to Celestial City. And on the way to Celestial City, they are tempted in all sorts of different ways to lead this path to Celestial City. And one of the spots they go through is a place called Vanity Fair. And at Vanity Fair, they are tempted by all this stuff this worldliness, this immorality, this greed, as John writes in 1 John 2.16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And in there in Vanity Fair, Christian and faithful are tempted, very tempted, to go after all this stuff. A lot of pilgrims who had been there before, who were on their way to Celestial City, got to Vanity Fair, and they said, you know, we like all this stuff that's around us. We like what we're able to do. We like the joy that we have, the pleasure that we have, the happiness, all these things. We're just going to stay here. And they stopped their journey to the Celestial City. And all these pilgrims were coming up to Christian and faithful saying, you should stay too because life is good here. Life is so good. But Christian faithful refuse to be distracted. They stand up and say, no, our hope is in the Celestial City. The person who has saved us is in the celestial city. We're going there. That is our goal, no matter what. And they speak truth to these people. And faithful is ultimately burned because of not turning aside what he said. Christian's thrown into jail. Christian escapes, continues on to celestial city. They both declared that they would not turn aside and pursue what the world would offer because their focus was on Jesus Christ. 
Pilgrim's Progress is a fictional story, but it's an allegory. And every day, it is relived in the lives of Christians around the world, especially Christians in America. Too often, we are not like Christian and faithful. And we're like all those others that turn aside at the sparkling things of this life. We are not faithful. We easily fall and do not live lives that reflect our salvation. But I'm thankful that though we so easily fall, God is faithful. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 11, 2, 11 to 13. Here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. When I was in high school and in college, I turned to these verses almost every day because daily I was shocked at my own sin, at the addiction that I kept wallowing in, turning around and around and wondering why can I not get free from the chains that are binding me? Why every day do I say, God, I'm going to live for you today, but I am still in this horrible sin that I know God hates? Why can I not gain freedom? Does God, is God going to give up on me because every day I give up on him? And I turn to this verse, and I realize that Scripture clearly teaches that God is not human. His character is not ours. And while we are faithless, over and over and over again, faithless, God shines ever faithful. Because of his faithfulness, as we pursue him, he gives us strength through turmoil. How does he give us this strength? He provides a barrier. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. God provides a barrier. Whatever situation, God makes sure that in that trial, in that temptation, we are not given more than we can handle. I think about Peter, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. They're sitting there in the upper room. They've just taken the Lord's Supper, Jesus' last meal. Jesus is teaching them some different things. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says to him in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter was going to be brought through a time worse than anything that he had ever experienced in his life. He was going to see the person he had placed his faith in to change the world. The person who he thought would change him was going to see him betrayed by one of his own, led before the ruling council and ultimately nailed to a cross and die the most horrible, miserable death. And in the midst of all that, Peter's going to be asked by some people who knew people, are you one of Jesus' followers? And Peter's going to be placed in this decision. Is he going to say, yes, I am, and be nailed to a cross too? Or is he going to save his own hide and deny Jesus and say, no, I don't know anything about him. This person I love, this person I spent three and a half years with, the one I owe everything to, don't know him. In that moment, he denied Jesus. We would say that in that moment, Peter failed. 
We would say that he had gone through something he could not handle because the temptation was there to stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus and say, yes, I am with this one. He is the Son of God. And Peter didn't do it. He turned his back and said, no, I don't want anything to do with him. We'd say, Peter, you are faithless. Peter, you have failed. Jesus, what you prayed for Peter didn't work. Because Jesus, you prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. And in that moment, Peter's faith failed. Jesus, what is going on? But Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. And ultimately, Peter's faith didn't. Momentarily, it did. But immediately, Peter repented. Immediately, Peter went outside and cried and realized what he did. And then he turned and strengthened his brothers. Exactly what Jesus prayed. Yes, we are faithless. But God's faithfulness is enduring no matter what we go through. His faithfulness is enduring. He provides a barrier, and then he provides a way out. In the barrier, there is a gate. Whatever we are facing, whatever is trying to pull us away from the cross of Christ into a life of faithlessness, whatever it is, there's a way out. There's a a way through it, through Jesus Christ, that we will not lose faith. We will not lose faithfulness. Whatever we are going through will not ultimately turn ourselves from Jesus Christ. Paul says salvation is not sanctification. Paul says that sanctification is not immediate. Paul says that God's faithfulness is enduring. Well, we must talk about the way out. When we're sitting on the fence of sanctification being tempted to put our toes in all those things that are not in line with the cross of Christ, whether it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all these things. And we wonder, okay, God, I'm not going through anything that is more than I can handle. It's not going to cause me to lose my faith in you. It's not going to cause me to to stumble away from the the way to eternity, or my salvation. What is the way out of this? So that I can live a life that is in keeping with my salvation, so that my daily testimony is that I am saved. What is the way out? Sometimes the way out is fleeing from the trial. We remove ourselves from it. We can think of the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph fled sexual immorality because he could not stand there on his own. We can think about what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22. He says, flee the evil desires of youth. Pursue righteousness and all these sorts of things. This evil desires of youth that Paul is talking about is actually an argumentative spirit in the context of going up to someone and saying, hey, I know what's right and I'm going to prove to you what is right no matter what you say. Paul says that is the evil desires of youth. He says, flee those evil desires. He's going to write to the Corinthians in just one verse. He's going to say, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. So there are some things that we flee from. But more often than not, when we're in a trial and a temptation, the way out is something different. The trial and temptation is not removed from us. Neither do we remove ourselves from it. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation's overtaken you. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what can bear. But when you're tempted, 
He will provide a way out so that you can endure it. The way out of the trial or temptation is not a removal of the trial or temptation, but ability to endure it until the end comes. He gives us endurance that mimics his. We live in a society that wants peace. Unfortunately, we look for this peace in all the wrong ways because we want to get out of the chaos. We want to get out of the pain. We want to get out of the suffering. We want peace. So we try to get out and we, we look to substances like alcohol, drugs, and pornography to, get, to find escape from this chaos and find peace in that moment. There are people that go through all day waiting for them to, to get home so they could have that one drink in order they can just relax. They find it there. Some people find it in technology. I just, I'm just going to zone through Facebook today just because I need, I need, I need rest. We find it in vacation. We find it in escapes. We find it in all these things saying, if I could just get out momentarily of the situation I'm in, I will have peace. But unfortunately, all these things that say, come to me, come to me, come to me, you can have peace, you can have peace, you can have peace, they're all lies. Because ultimate peace doesn't come from those things. God says, find rest in me. Grab on to my faithfulness. Cling tight to who I am so that who I am bleeds through to you. As we focus on God, our Savior, saying you've gone through all these things for me, therefore you are what I need in this moment. I'm going to cling on to you. We start having his endurance every moment of every day. We realize that the way out that he is providing in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is not a door, but it's a panel that we get to reach through and grab our Savior's hand. And we hold on to it to the end. Why? Because every moment we want our daily testimony to match our salvation. Every moment, no matter what we're going through, our daily testimony is to match our salvation. The Israelites gave up and they died in the wilderness. The Corinthians gave up and they lost their testimony. What are we going to do? No matter what we're going through, our endurance, our faithfulness should mimic Christ's every single day. So what do people see when they look at us? Do they see just this person who lives in Neely or whatever town you live in? Do they see a farmer or, or a businessman or, or a construction worker? Do they see someone who cares about politics? Someone who's scared about what the future will bring? What do they see when they look at us? Or do they look at us and see someone beyond a shadow of a doubt who's saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and who's living, trying to live every moment of every day to show that fact to those around them? Are we someone who are like the Israelites and the Corinthians who continually set ourselves on evil things just because of the, of the momentary distraction it will bring? Are we someone who strives daily in our testimony to have it match our salvation? God is faithful, Paul says. God is faithful. So may we take heed lest we fall. Will you pray with me?
Oh, Lord, forgive me. Of all the time,